Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. For a few weeks now since Pesach, Temple Beth Am has been focusing on issues related to sanctity, Kedusha. We've been teaching it on Shabbat afternoons uh, in between Mincha and Mari, but Sudashli Sheet, using and adapting and expanding a curriculum from the Hartman Institute. It was our focus this morning in our Hama'alot service on the roof. And while it's not going to connect to every one of the sessions tonight, uh, the notion of the sanctification of time is a centerpiece of what we are focusing on. And this plenary session is going to have two uh, aspects to it. First, uh, my friend and colleague, Rabbi Michelle Masagia from Temple Israel of Hollywood, will be uh, co-teaching with me some sources those are the ones you have in front of you that are taken from this Hartman curriculum. And then she will be joining a panel with Rabbi Noah Farkas, Rabbi Adam Greenwald, moderated by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Um, as we explore what the tradition, the biblical tradition and the rabbinic tradition and the modern human tradition has to say about what we mean when we say time has holiness or time is holy. As part of our Hamalot service this morning, I won't recreate it, but I'll describe it. We did an exercise where we imagined that time, the concept, however you want to think of it or personify it, was sitting in the center of the circle. And we addressed time in the second person. We spoke to time. What would we say if we had to talk to time? Time passing, time threatening to end, Time always there and yet impossible to actually grasp onto. For thousands of years, before even the notion of philosophy existed, the Jews have had their own relationship with time. And I think in a wonderfully prescient way, magnifying the sanctification of time over the sanctification of space. Not to suggest that spaces can't be holy. There are a lot of dollars invested in the notion of holy space on this campus and the city and the Jewish world. But perhaps one of the things that most stood the Jews in good stead over the years of diaspora was being able to mourn the loss of sanctified space, transcend the notion that it's space mostly that brings sanctity to our lives, and double down and then triple down and quadruple down that if we can make time holy, then our peoplehood and our values have a chance of perpetuating. So we're going to spend a few minutes tonight going back into some of those sources, biblical and modern, and then very modern, hearing how some of the rabbis that you know so well think about this issue from the very beginning. So we'll start by inviting Rabbi Masagia up to teach the first sources. And when she and I were preparing this, we realized that we've now uh, been rabbis together in the city for 13 years. You've been here longer than 13 years. And we've never done anything together. I mean, we've had coffee, we've spoken, but we've never rabbi together. And it's such a delight to have you on our campus, Rabbi Masagia, and have you teaching to this joint community. Welcome. Hi, everyone. So good to be here. It was so great to walk in and see so many familiar faces. Shavua Tov and Chak Sameach. Okay, in front of you, you have some texts that you know pretty well, but I wanna sort of look at them from different angles. Um, the first text in Genesis, Bereshit chapter two, um, verses one through three, comes after the first creation story. Um, you know, there are two creation stories. The first creation story is day one, this happens, day two, this happens, day three, this happens. And then at the very end, there is this pronouncement about Shabbat. And I found it um, so interesting that this is something that we sing every Friday night. But when I looked at it more deeply, I saw new things in it that I hadn't seen before. Um, first of all, the word work appears three times. Look at these verses just with me. I'll read them in English quickly because you know them. The heaven and the earth were finished and all they contained on the seventh day, God finished the work which God had made and God rested on the seventh day from all the work which God had made. 
and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it God rested from all the work that God, which God in creating had made. Okay, so the word melacha, work, appears three times just in these three verses. The idea of resting appears twice. The idea that God made or did something appears two times. And there's a lot of tension going on here. There's tension between doing, between working, and between resting. And in the midst of this tension between working and resting, there's this idea of blessing. And I just have to lift up that this is the second time the concept of blessing even appears in the entire Hebrew Bible. The first time was back when Adam and Eve were created and they were blessed, actually, well, the God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. So the first time blessing appears has to do with humanity. And the second time blessing appears is right now, has to do with time. So one is people and one is time. And here we're asked to bless time in the midst of this tension of working and resting. Monday flows into Tuesday, which flows into Wednesday, which flows into Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, and then the week starts over again. I don't know about you, but that's often what my weeks look like. And to think back and say, wait, what happened on Monday? And how is that different from Tuesday? And then, was it this Wednesday or last Wednesday? And you just sort of lose track of time when things like illness happens, or things like joy happens, or things like just run to errands and fill in the gas tank. The gas, the start of the tank gas. And they sort of melded the days into ones. Is what this section of Torah is trying to say. Putting a stop. Taking a moment to pause and to reflect. Now, I have to admit that doing that weekly, I find very challenging. I do. I'm lucky that I have a job that makes me celebrate Shabbat. <laughs> but if I didn't have a job that made me celebrate Shabbat, I have to admit that I'm not sure I would do that often. And there are lots of things that get into our way. And there are bigger events that I actually want to share that I think there's something to learn from and apply it to Shabbat. So I just received my honorary doctorate of divinity, which uh, rabbis get when they're in the field for 25 years. And because of COVID, I've been in the field for 26 years. So I just got it. And I thought to myself before getting it, okay, whatever, not a big deal. You just work for 25 years and that's it and you get it. I went to the dinner beforehand that was just for the people getting their honorary doctorates. And it was very moving to hear all the rabbis talk about what we've been doing for the past 25 years. And I started driving home and I was crying and I was reflecting on how I got to that moment. And I was thinking about my favorite professors, Lou Barth, David Allenson, Tamara Eskenazi. I was th thinking about my mentor, John Rosoff. I was thinking about my husband and my three children and how just that group of people, those were my biggest support. And I came home and my husband and kids were out that night and I sat down in front of the computer and I literally cried for about an hour and a half and wrote letters to every single one of those people. And I'm usually a handwriting letter person, but it was the night before my doctorate. <laughs> and so I had to email them to everyone. And for my husband and kids, I actually printed them out and 
taped them to the door and said, please read these at, during the graduation ceremony. And I share this story with you because I just sort of intuitively came up with an idea of how to mark that time in my life. And I wonder if there are things we can learn from that story about marking our week every week. Hopefully we won't cry for an hour and a half as we, as we do this, but, but what would it be like to actually bless time in very intimate emotional ways? What would that look like? Right now, I often sit outside and read the New York Times. A whole week of New York Times is <laughs> on Shabbat afternoon. But what would it be like if I sat there and actually reflected on who helped me get to the Shabbat? What were the blessings that brought me to where I am right now? And what if I made a ritual out of that? What if we personalized it and did that in community, but also individually? Because I don't need to talk to you about how wonderful it is to turn off your phone and, and you know, decompress once a week. We all know that intellectually, but we also know how difficult that is to do. And so I, I share that example with you as perhaps an inspiration for all of us including myself, to think about how we can bring a taste of that into our lives weekly. And you can see also that um, later Shabbat is spoken about in Exodus and Deuteronomy. That's source number two and source number three. And I just want to touch upon that for a moment. Source number two is in the first version of the Ten Commandments. It says, remember Shabbat and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but in the seventh day of the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Um, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male, female, slave, cattle, stranger, within your gates, next page. For in six days, Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and God rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Here, the reason why we keep Shabbat is hearkening back to the creation story that we just read in source one. And then you may know that in the second version of the Ten Commandments that we find in Deuteronomy, that is source number three, the reason for keeping Shabbat is totally different. The reason there is because God freed us out of Egypt and we were slaves. The, the words work and rest appear in both of them, but the reasons are different. And I would venture to say that how Shabbat plays out in our lives also will change over time. When I was a young mother, Shabbat was about actually walking to this synagogue. Um, my husband would take the kids here and I would meet him here after I did Shabbat at my own synagogue. And Shabbat was a time when we would try to entertain our kids as much as possible and keep them in community in that way. And now Shabbat has turned into a different thing because most of our kids are out of the house. And so it becomes a different type of experience with different type of challenges. And God willing, if I live to old age, perhaps Shabbat will then take on a different type of uh, ta'am, a different taste in the future. And so I wanna allow ourselves, just like Torah, uh, allow ourselves to, to change over time with our relationship to Shabbat and to challenge ourselves and to open ourselves in new ways, depending on what's going on in our life. So with that, I'll close for now, and I will re-invite my colleague, Adam Kligfeld, up. Thank you, Rabbi Misagia. A delight to hear you teach. I'm three years away, by the way. From my from my from my unearned doctorate, you know, I don't know. In the reform movement, they made this joke. In the conservative movement, it's a DD, it's a Doctor of Divinity, and we say it stands for didn't die. 
because that's the most significant accomplishment uh, over the career. And if you ever wondered how progressive Ziegler was compared to JTS, this is very important. So at HUC, you're ordained, you have to work 25 years to get your doctorate. JTS, 25 years doing this to get your doctorate. Ziegler, 20. 20. Ziegler grads work 25% harder every year and they earn their doctorates earlier. So I, 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 I knew I should have gone to Ziegler. So I think it was the summer of 1994 that my parents really thought I had gone crazy. I grew up in a Jewish home where we didn't use these terms then, but I would use it now. We, ce we celebrated Shabbat and the holidays, but we didn't observe them. I don't even actually know the category of observance of Shabbat, but we celebrated them and then some. Our entire year was revolving around Jewish time. And again, this is ex post facto language. It was sort of our putting our sovereign modern American imprint upon the rubric of Jewish time that had been given to us through the centuries. Most of the time, Jewish time held much less than a veto in the decisions that we made as a family. And I say this with zero judgment, by the way. I'm, I loved my Jewish upbringing, and it brought me to, uh, to the life that I'm living today. Uh, in the spring of 1994, I spent a few months um, in, in yeshiva. I had a break from college, and I studied yeshivat hamiftar in Israel. And that summer, uh, I staffed a USY trip to Eastern Europe and Israel as I'd done previous, previous summers. And for some reason, that summer, the itinerary switched uh, from Poland. We went north into the uh, Baltics, and we were spending Shabbat in Riga, Riga, Latvia. And for some reason, we were in a tall, high-rise hotel in Riga, and our rooms were on the 20th and 21st and 22nd floor. And I remember being proud when I came home to tell my parents it was like to send Shabbat in Riga and what it was like for us walking all the way up to the 20th and 21st and 22nd floors with my teenagers in tow, showing ourselves and the Holy One how sanctified Shabbat was. My parents thought I had lost my mind. Because to my parents, who to this day love and venerate Shabbat, the notion of having uh, ancient rabbinic principles override sanity when it comes to the definition of what is and what does not work veered past a normative religious practice to them. And I understood at the time that there was a really interesting tension going on, a loving and respectful tension, right? And that's the tension of sovereignty versus sanctity, right? So in the modern idiom, we sovereign independent selves, we liberated people, we champion and thrill at our sovereignty to make decisions for ourselves. And we don't like to submit to almost any authority. And at least in one realm of how Judaism has defined holiness, holiness is indeed the submission of our sovereignty to a sovereignty greater than us, and that is God's sovereignty, which is represented in the tradition through Jewish practice and Jewish law. That is a living and wonderful tension. And I'm kind of deep enough into my own Jewish exploration to say that both ways that one falls on that fulcrum um, has merit in the, uh, in, in the Jewish world and in Jewish practice. And I want to share some words with you from Professor Moshe Halbertal, who's a philosopher at Hebrew University and through the Hartman Institute. is also one of the authors of the Code of Ethics for the IDF, an essay he wrote um, over 20 years ago. This essay was written in relationship to the Shemitah year, which we also are in right now. Um, it was never formally published, but you know, Hartman can get their hands on anything. So just, Hartman's probably reading your emails right now. Okay. Um, Halakha instructs believers not to engage in any creation on holy days. The halakha developing directly from the verses that Rabbi Masagia taught us just a few minutes ago. This prohibition is the primary marker of holy days. On the Sabbath, man, humanity are forbidden to engage in any creative or sovereign activities. I like how he's linking creation and sovereignty. 
Normally, we think of creation halakha as making things that didn't exist before, making changes to the world that are somehow irreparable. That's what God did for six days and God rested. That's what we do for six days. We need to rest. But he's linking creativity with sovereignty, creativity with this notion that I am in charge. And on Shabbat, the way I, and, and on the Shabbat of the agriculture, Shemitah, the way I express my sense that Judaism has some claim to me is that I surrender my sovereignty. I could create if I wanted to. I choose not to. I could, in 1994, get in the elevator. I choose not to. I could do that which I define for myself as rest. I choose in homage to a thousands of years tradition to define rest the way my ancestors have and therefore refrain from things that my ancestors consider to be work. It is not manual labor that is barred. Religious Jews are allowed to carry heavy objects from one end of the room to the other and religious Jews are permitted to walk up 20 flights of stairs in Riga 1994. But any attempt as minute as, as, minute as may be to alter the surroundings constitutes desecration of the holy day. Any attempt to submit your will and your sovereignty upon the world as it is right now is considered a violation of Judaism's definition of what it means to truly sanctify time, at least to truly sanctify time occasionally, once a week. On regular days, on the other hand, and if you're familiar with Heschel's writing on Shabbat, this will be evocative. On regular days, on the other hand, Man is free to govern and control. Go ahead, be in charge, be sovereign. On regular days, man creates and conquers. And on Shabbat, man must treat nature as a gift that must not be tampered with. This perception of holiness under which sovereignty and sanctity are a contradiction in terms, I'll go back to that in a second, is evident in all halachic definitions of sanctity. I want to ask you to ruminate in your minds, if this were a smaller group, I would ask for reactions, but I want to make sure we have time for the panel discussion as well. He is positing that sovereignty and sanctity are contradiction in terms they are mutually exclusive from the religious perspective. Just a parenthesis, by the way, because particularly if you've been counting the Omer these last seven weeks through the prism of the Kabbalistic understanding of the seven, uh, seven weeks, Sovereignty in Kabbalah means something very different than sovereignty here. Sovereignty in Kabbalah, Machut, which is the last week of the Omer that we just finished, doesn't have to do with your wielding authority or power. It means your full independence and your lack of needs. A melech, a king or a queen, um, uh, does not lack for anything. The Holy One, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, lacks for nothing. When we are exemplifying, exemplifying our sovereign self, the part of ourself that is connected to Malchut, we, we have no needs, we have no lacks, we have no wants, and therefore our relationships with others can be healthier because we're not insisting that they do something for us. That's a very different understanding of sovereignty than what he's saying here. He's saying sovereignty, the ability of the king not to get the king's needs met, but the, the ability of the king to, um, to command and to create and to not have to submit to any other authority other than one's own. Halbertal continues, this year is a Shemitah. Produce from this year may be consumed, but must not be processed. For example, it may not be used to make medicine. That shows how severe the prohibition is, how severe the request is that we submit and we surrender that which we believe we should have the right to hold on to, and that, that is to work the world for our own benefit. Sanctity is that realm that is inaccessible and that cannot be controlled. That is why it is not allowed to use holy sites for any other purposes outside religious practice. One of the manifestations of the holiness of a synagogue is that people are not allowed to use this as a shortcut, as the Mishnah says, and this is an unintended intertextuality tonight. If you stay the night, you'll have lots of different sessions unintentionally speaking to another because this source that he's quoting here is actually one of the sources that I'm teaching in the next session with Rabbi Schatz. He shall not enter the Temple Mount with his cane and his shoes and his money belt and the dust on his feet and shall not make it into a kapandaria, a shortcut. The essence of holiness as it emerges from the Jewish halakha is about surrendering power and is designed to limit man's governance and sovereignty. 20, how many years? 28 years after that Riga encounter, I'm still thinking about it. And I'm still thinking about, in that conversation they had with my parents upon my return, which one of us was more right? 
I was pretty certain at the time that I was. I was certain that the greatest way for me to honor the Holy One and honor Shabbat was to schlep up 22 floors and to show that I'm willing to submit to a different definition of time than the one I would choose for myself if I were in charge. But it also seems to me that religious life, even beautiful, well-intended religious life, can get problematic, can get cancerous, when we are too willing to submit to a different authority and surrender that other thing that God gave us, which was da'at and chokhmah and bina, and rationality and wisdom and discretion to make some sort of decisions about which definitions from then are exactly as they ought to have been and which definitions from them need to be reimagined as we are constantly re-sanctifying time as time moves forward. So as with most things in the Jewish condition, I think it lives in a living tension. I think anyone who believes they have solved it with certainty is selling you something that is not worth that much. And one of the things that I invite us to consider as we move from this frontal presentation to the plenary discussion is how each of us dances that dance between our asserting sovereignty over the world and our submitting to the sovereignty of the Holy One. Our using our incredible minds and our capable minds to make decisions about what seems reasonable, what seems best, and when to take a step back and say, those wiser than I and forged in the crucible of time have created forms and structures that I'm allowed to lean into, that I'm allowed to submit myself to, so that as I live my short life in this expanse of time, I can make that life and that time as sanctified as possible. What we're now going to do is move this shulchan out, move the table in, and invite our panel forward and Rabbi Chorney, and they are going to be uh, engaged in a conversation about these very sources and topics. Well, welcome again, everybody. It's so wonderful to have you here. I'm Hilary Chorney. I'm the cantor at Temple Betham, also a rabbi, and I feel deeply connected to these incredible Jewish professionals who are sitting up here with me. just want to take a moment to acknowledge some of the many uh, titles and affiliations that are worthy of mentioning before we delve into this conversation. Uh, to my right here is Rabbi Noah Farkas, who until very recently was at Valley Beth Shalom in the valley and is now, <laughs> is now CEO of our Jewish Federation here in Los Angeles and much closer some of the time, just up the street. And uh, also to his right, again, just to reintroduce you, uh, is Rabbi Michelle Masagia. Oh, that's not a great microphone sound. Hang on. Switch that out. Uh, right uh, to his right is Rabbi Michelle Masagia, who is, uh, I did not know quite how long you had been at Temple Israel of Hollywood or here in Los Angeles in the rabbinate, but re-welcome and thank you already for your teaching and your Torah this evening. And Rabbi Adam Greenwald, doing the reverse, Rabbi Noah Fargus, has until recently been working as a Jewish organizational professional. Many of you know him from uh, his work with, uh, through the American Jewish University in the Introduction to Judaism program, the Miller Introduction to Judaism program, and then later an expanded role with the Moss, uh, family, the Moss Center for Jewish Journeys. Did I get it? and uh, now is moving back into congregational life at CBI of Tustin, and we wish him luck. Oh, one for Orange County. We look, wish him luck uh, moving, moving southbound. Um, I feel so... I like, you put, oh. I, like it. I like that you put the guy moving to Orange County on the extreme right. <laughs> the joke would work better if the timing was better. You're on their left, buddy. Oh, you're on their left. That's the trick. Don't tell anyone in your new surround. So I feel particularly blessed because I've shared so many Jewish learning spaces with these rabbis, and I know how much they have to share with you. So mostly my role here tonight is just to ask the questions that I've shared ready with them and so we can ruminate together. But we've connected in so many Jewish spaces. Uh, rabbis Farkas and Masagi and I are part of a cohort through the Hartman Institute, power in 2020. We got the blessing of being together in person 
just before the pandemic began, and we've remained in relationship. And uh, Rabbi Greenwald and I go back to the shuttle bus from the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem, where we used to ride with uh, with the rabbi up to teach in a Beit Midrash at Hebrew University. And we've been learning Torah on and off together ever since. I want to go right back into Shabbat. Not literally, let's stay in Shavuot. But I want to go right back into the topic of Shabbat, thinking about my teacher, Rabbi Joel Levy, with an outstanding British accent from conservative yeshiva, who when teaching about Shabbat would say something along the lines of, pardon my poor attempt at his accent, but I walk outside my apartment and I see that there is rubbish on the ground on Shabbat morning, and I think to myself, that rubbish is beautiful. <laughs> and it was his way of saying, even the trash that needs to be picked up from the ground is a part of the fixed nature of Shabbat that we accept upon ourselves. Shabbat is a verb in these texts that we've been looking at. And so my question to each of you, and perhaps we'll start on the far right left with Rabbi Adam Greenwald. My question to each of you is this. When we consider Vayishbot and Shabbat and the verbs of Shabbat, is it more for each of you that Shabbat comes through what you actively do, the aseh, the things that we're commanded to proactively do on Shabbat, or is it more in what we refrain from doing? And I specifically give the example of not picking up the uh, rubbish on the ground because it's not just about refraining from the use of electronics or something else, it's also about refraining from trying to change the world for one day. So where does Shabbat live for each of you? Is it in the doing, in the refraining, or something between? I remember the line that gave me Shabbat. I was 19, I was at UCLA Hillel, and my teacher then, and I know a teacher to many of us, Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller, was telling a story that sounds like it should be from Heschel, but I've never found it in Heschel. He, it was a sort of thought experiment. He said, imagine it's five minutes before Shabbat, and you're hosting all of your guests, you've been cooking all day, the table is perfectly set, you have a couple of minutes to yourself, you go out in the backyard, and on the rose bush, there is this one perfect, glorious red rose. He said, it's five minutes before Shabbat. What do you do? You clip it. You clip it and bring it in, and it is the piece de resistance on your Shabbat table. He said, now fast forward 10 minutes in your mind. Now it's five minutes after Shabbat. Exact same scenario. Your guests aren't over yet. You go back into the backyard to catch your breath. There is that perfect, glorious rose on the bush. What do you do? You lean down, you take a deep sniff, and you go back inside, and your table is good enough, and the rose gets to go on being a rose. And I, I remember where I was sitting in the Beit Midrash at UCLA Hillel when Rabbi Chaim gave that image. And it was this, this deep sense of understanding of what it is one day a week to feel like I have enough one day a week to not look at the world as a toy box to be drawn from or as a resource to be exploited, but as something simply to, to coexist with. So I hadn't thought of it in the terms of, is it something to do or something not to do? But I think, I think going back to that moment, Shabbat for me is a little bit of a letting go. It's a moment of saying, I have enough, and the world can go on being the world, the rose can go on being the rose, and my Shabbos dinner table is beautiful, just as it is. I appreciate your reflections on the permission that Shabbat gave you and your teacher gave you to embrace Shabbat in that particular way. Uh, Rabbi Masagi. I, uh, I live in the tension of um, doing and refraining from doing. And uh, I try to put thought into each one. So um, one of my classmates uh, um, in rabbinical school said that she doesn't eat dessert during the week, but she always eats dessert on Shabbat. 
And I remember learning that many years ago and thinking, oh, that's such a good idea. I think I'll do that. Um, and uh, my mother lives in assisted living in Beverly Hills. Um, I'm originally from New York City, as I'm sure you could tell from my accent. And uh, so Shabbat is uh, the day that I often go and visit her. And I also go on my day off, which is Thursday. Um, so I don't have a problem with driving. I drive to work. I drive to see her. I'll drive to the beach to enjoy Shabbat. I'll pay at the beach in order to enjoy Shabbat, but I won't pay to do errands. So I won't go and fill up my car tank. I won't go, you know, to Trader Joe's and go shopping or to Target. So it's not that I'm against spending money on Shabbat. It's that I'm against spending it uh, if it's an errand. But if it's in favor of enjoying Shabbat or being with family, I'll do that. Uh, I'll use the phone in order to connect with friends, connect with family. Um, I'll also use the phone if it's an emergency with the synagogue. So I try to put thought into it as opposed to just treating it like a day, like any other day. Um, so that's, that's the conflict and the tension I live in. Um, it would probably be easier to just say I'm never doing X or I'm never doing Y, but I don't live in that world. And how often do you eat dessert? <laughs> <laughs> I try to eat dessert every Shabbat, but you know, sometimes it, it bleeds into other days, but it's a little shop on your Tuesday. It's generally, generally on Shabbat. Yeah. Beautiful. Rabbi Farkas. Follow these great people. This is uh, this is tough. First of all, thank you for having me, uh, and to Rabbi Clickfeld, thank you for hosting tonight. You have a wonderful place, beautiful community. Uh, this is the first time in 14 years where I'm not running my own Shavuot program, and so I'm a little disoriented. Um, <laughs> Uh, so uh, I'm going to start with dessert too, just to give a sense. We have a very special custom in our family. We serve Shabbat uh, on Friday night. We'll have dessert. And uh, we give special permission to our children that they can have dessert for breakfast on Saturday morning. And so it doesn't matter what we have for dessert on Friday night. They can have the same thing for, for breakfast the next morning. So sometimes it's brownies for breakfast. Sometimes it's cake. Sometimes it's hot fudge Sundays. Um, it is a true fat. We that's one of our halachot in our house. That's incredible that it lasts until the next morning. <laughs> we leave it out. It's amazing. It's a soupy by the time. But no, but we always make enough. And uh, it is uh, it is a rule in our house to make Shabbat special. Uh, the kids can have dessert for breakfast. Um, and uh, but the thing I want to just touch on, I guess it's just a touch philosophical and, and textual is that if you look at the verses that you brought tonight, thank you for doing that, um, there are three active verbs in each of those uh, sentences. The first is to vayishbot, which means to make Shabbat, right? To, to Shabbating, I guess you would say. Um, and the second one is vayavarech, and the third is vayikadesh. And there, it is given in that order, both in uh, Breshit and in Devarim. And uh, so when I think about that chain, it, it, it's, it's sort of getting to your question is um, to do Shabbat is always active. But the question is, what are you participating, what is the active activity that you are participating in? And is there a linear uh, connection between making or doing Shabbat Vayishbot and blessing, and then ultimately making holy? So uh, in my mind, it requires a couple of ingredients. The first is that you have to acknowledge that uh, what happens on Shabbat is different than the rest of the week and that you have to actively make it. You can make Shabbat on Wednesday if you wanted by going through this process, but we've agreed as a community that Friday night is the sixth day and at the beginning of the seventh day and that that is when we would make Shabbat. So you have to actively do that. And then the first action you take when you're doing that is actually to commit yourself to the idea of blessing, which opens up a whole philosophical world of, uh, of what it means to be this is, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, opens up a whole philosophical world about what it means to be together 
because uh, to bless something means to acknowledge its existence, to appreciate its existence, and then finally to make something sanctified or holy. Um, be, it's one of those words that means both to separate from the rest of the week and to bring things together. <laughs> and to bring things together <laughs> um, with other people. That uh, the things which are committed to in works of holiness have to be done often with other Jews. You can't do them on your own. So the idea of creating Shabbat opens up these doors of blessing and holiness. I love that all of your stories are cohortative and community-based. It's clear that Shabbat for each of you, whether it's about refraining or actively doing, it isn't Shabbat without the people who you're making Shabbat with. I want to go a little bit deeper now and move into the idea of who Shabbat belongs to, but I want to do it by way of a story. My father-in-law, who uh, got his uh, DD not that many years ago from JTS, he took a break from the rabbinate. He was burned out right away. He wouldn't mind my saying that. It's a part of his story. He's now a pulpit rabbi again, but when he took a break, he went down to his childhood home in Bogota, Colombia, and ran an Apple computer store for years, for years, for nine years. And when he was down there, his employees were all non-Jews, and he insisted that every one of them take a full seven days should they lose an immediate relative. He said that he thought that Shiva was a gift, not just to the Jews, but that he thought it was one of the wisest things that Jews have within our portfolio to give people a real break. He insisted, take a week, a paid week, and just be. My question is, if and how, and I'll start with Rabbi Farkas in just a moment, if and how Shabbat is something that we can also extend to people beyond the Jewish community, seeing as it was given in the creation story before there was a Jewish people? And if so, how? And if not, if not, oh, it's like okay. We're going to play musical microphones. <laughs> and if so, how? And if not, why? Okay, so uh, just a historical context, right? The Sabbath was an invention uh, in, in the Jewish mind and in the Torah from God uh, to the Jewish people. It's one of our greatest gifts to the humanity. And um, in some fashion or another, billions of people celebrate the Sabbath. They just don't happen to celebrate the Sabbath in the same way or exactly on the same day that we do. Um, Christians adopted it a day later. Muslims adopted it a day earlier. So there's something very valuable about it uh, to the human mind. Uh, and to the spiritual needs of our souls. Um, I, I, so I, it, it's already out there. But I would say that um, what's important about the concepts of Sabbath, whether it's Shabbat, how we celebrate it, or how um, others celebrate it, the concept of it is incredibly important. Uh, I, I think what the most important idea behind it is that it shows that your worth as a human being is not tied to you as a means of production. That you are not, your worth is not your GPA or your bank account or your accomplishments on your resume. Your worth is actually innate and holy and given to you. And the only day of the week where you can express that part of yourself is on Shabbat because because um, your evaluation is, am I a good father, a good mother, a brother, a sister, etc.? Am I a good human being? Not how much money do I make? How, what kind of grades do I get? And... Um, I just think that that is a that is a reminder, like Shemitah, as Moshe Halbatar was saying, is a reminder of our innate holiness, and not as ourselves as a, a tool to be used for some greater means. Beautiful, uh, Rabbi Masage or Greenwald, would one of you eager to answer? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the question gives me the heebie-jeebies, and I'm sitting with why, and. Um, I feel like there's just too much hubris in it. Like, we're not so important. We don't have some sort of uh, special gift that we want to impose on the whole rest of the world. I don't know. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and I actually think and really believe deep in my heart that God created a diverse world 
with different religions, different traditions, different um, values, and that, yeah, I'm, I love being Jewish. I think it's fabulous. Um, but I'm really not interested in imposing that on another person's uh, religious practices. And I think that there are many religious practices with gifts of their own. And so um, I, I'm actually, I love the story you told, but I'm, I'm, it, it's not something that I'm comfortable with. Well, so thinking about both of your responses, right? What I heard, because I also worry a little bit about like, just replicate the form, do what we do, as opposed to a world in which everybody brings something unique to the table. That makes a much more interesting dinner party than if everybody brings Kogel. Um, though I'm clearly okay with everybody bringing Kogel. Um, but, but Noah, what you were saying, what I heard you saying at the end was, not about the form of Shabbat, but about the values of Shabbat. And one of those values that you were lifting up was that idea that our worth is not connected to our net worth, that our worth is not connected to our productivity. And that does feel like a universally good idea to affirm and lift up. And, and, and as you were speaking, I was remembering a story that happened um, the last time I was a pulpit rabbi, 10 years ago when I was working as an assistant rabbi at Icar, um, I gave some short sermon about the, the concept of muksa and the things that we don't touch and carry on Shabbat. And uh, it wasn't very good, but I was a first year rabbi and whatever, I've gotten better. It's a fun word to say though, muksa. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a guy came up to me, <laughs> a guy came up to me and uh, after, after Shul and he said, you don't know me. Um, and one of the things that you wouldn't guess about me by looking at me is I'm essentially at this point homeless. He said, I, I, I had a house. I had a messy end to my marriage. I don't have that house anymore. I've been out of work now for a couple of years and there's nobody hiring guys my age in this field. And I've been couch surfing for months with different friends and I'm running out of friends. He said, the one time of the week that I don't feel like a failure as a person because there's nothing in my wallet is Shabbos. Because for one day, I have worth that's not connected to the fact that I don't have anything in my pockets. And it like knocked me on my tuchus. Like, I'll never forget it. That's a value that I'd be very comfortable universalizing, right? Making a, a, a part of our job be a message to the world that says that whoever you are, whatever you do, however much you make, you are a beloved child of God. And we have a long way to go to get people to really feel that. I love all of your answers. I particularly love discomfort because I, I don't mind creating the discomfort. And I think that where I sit as I reflect on this question is that I think I experience it as a blessing that we can even ask this question because there have been times in our history where not by our choosing, but by the choosing of those who are in classes of higher authority than the Jewish people, we were forced to live in a world that was by Jews for Jews only. And I think that our having to contend with this question or perhaps getting to contend with this question is a blessing because I'm certain that whether or not we're seeking it out, we are receiving all the time gifts from other traditions. I, I know Valentine's Day has taught me to appreciate my beloved a little bit more. There are things we pick up from the world out and beyond us. I wanna take that concept of actually engaging with the people who are around us, even and especially people who don't share our Jewish tradition. And I wanna translate it to the question of Shabbat and wrestling with Shabbat ourselves. And, it, I don't know how much he knows this, but I reteach a sermon of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld very regularly about Shabbat. Uh, it came from many summers back in which he told the story about a congregant who was going on a business trip on Pesach and came to Rabbi Klickfeld before that business trip and asked Rabbi Klickfeld how it was that he should engage in the world during Cholomoed because he would have to go to business meetings. He was going to have to go out to dinner or to bars at least and to schmooze with people and what 
what exactly was he to do? Could he even have a glass of water? Could he have a cup of something else? How should he do Pesach while doing that? And Rabbi Klickfeld reflected, and this has really stuck with me for years, as you know, that that perhaps is a much more authentically lived out version of Pesach than the version that, I'll speak in I language, that I live, in which I prepare and prepare and prepare, such that by the time Pesach comes, I don't even give a second thought to the cupboard that I'm reaching into. Our relationship, each of us, I know, has changed over time with Shabbat and the way that we do Shabbat and contend with the world around us and our lives and our families have changed over these years. How has, maybe we'll start with you, Rabbi Masagia, how has Shabbat, in contending with the world and with your reality and how it's changed, how has it changed over time? And in particular, if you're willing to share, how does it challenge you as a contemporary rabbi to live and to do Shabbat, even and especially when Shabbat is your work? You know, it's a, it, it's a blessing and a burden that Shabbat is my work. Um, on the one hand, it makes it easy. Oh, I, well, I have to go to shul. Sorry. Gotta leave. Gotta go. Right? Um, on the other hand, it, um, it, it's not, it, it is an obligation and not coming from my heart necessarily. Once I'm there, I love it. <laughs> I wouldn't do this for 26 years if I didn't, right? I love it. But I, I have an easy out. Oh, well, got to go. That's my job. And I'm thinking about, um, I've been thinking about how, given that this is Shavuot also, that in order to receive Shabbat, um, you have to sort of make yourself open to whatever will come your way. It goes back to what Rabbi Kligfeld was teaching from Moshe Halbertal, this sense of not controlling and being open. Um, there's a teaching that uh, teaches that in order to receive Torah, we have to be hefker. And hefker is usually a rabbinic term that, that has to do with an object that doesn't belong to anyone. Right? It's hefker. But we're told that we have to make ourselves hefker. And I wonder what that means for Shabbat and what that means for Torah. What does it mean to make ourselves like the wilderness, uh, unclaimed, unowned? Right? And, and how do I do that? Because I'm charged to be up there and to teach people and to share my wisdom. And so I prepare during the week, what am I gonna teach? What am I gonna focus on? How am I going to relate it to my congregants? How am I going to personalize it myself? There's a, there's a big burden on the rabbi, but it's also a burden that I enjoy. And so how do I make myself ayin or like in chasidut, um, or in Buddhism, nothingness. How do I do that? How do I make myself hefker? And at the same time, how do I own my place and my space? And that tension is what lives out in me every week. Um, and then to complicate it more is that I'm not just a rabbi, right? I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter. And so even though I can put on that hat when I go into shul, I have to take off that hat when I come home because I can't wear, ra wear that rabbi hat all day. Um, that won't be healthy for any of my relationships. So that's how it plays out a little bit. In just a second, we'll go to Rabbi Greenwald. But first, I have to ask, did you secretly sneak into the back of Hamalo this morning? We were, we were discussing all the texts about healthcare and oh, really? Shabbat and making ourselves like the Midbar, like the wilderness. Yeah. But I appreciate that it's a particularly interesting challenge for those of us who are trying to give so much on Shabbat to make ourselves open enough to do all that receiving. And that's, that's not something I'd reflected on before. Yeah. So in three weeks, 
I will be a pulpit rabbi for the first time in 10 years, which means I can no longer arrive at Shul between the fourth and fifth Aliyah, <laughs> which is such a bummer. <sighs> it's been a nice run. Noah, enjoy. <laughs> um, I, I want to, because I don't have the experience right now, talk to me in a year, of, uh, of needing to be up on the bima. I actually have had a, a Shabbos for the last 10 years. Um, but another piece of your question about what's challenging here, I found that COVID made Shabbos impossible. It didn't just make Shabbos impossible because of hosting and meals and all of that, though that was impossible. And it didn't just make Shabbos impossible because of shul and do I go and do I daven in a mask and can I come out? But that was impossible. It also was impossible because time has been a mush for the last two years and counting. It's just all been kind of that mush. And so carving out a specific day to feel different than all other days when every damn day felt the same for years was really hard. And I'm not back to feeling my Shabbos yet. I'm really not. I, thank God we're a lot further along than we were a year ago at this time or two years ago at this time, but it's still work to reclaim a sense of separate and holy time in the midst of this really strange time. And so if any of you are feeling the same way that Shabbos has been particularly hard for the last couple of years, um, I, I, I'm right there with you. And I think we just have to muddle through it together. And if anybody has figured out some really good wisdom on how to do that, I'm all ears after the session because I want my Shabbos back and I'm not prepared to let COVID take it forever. I'm going to give Rabbi Farkas the last word on this question, and then we'll wrap our conversation in just a moment. But I'm remembering as you're speaking that I had you uh, about two years and change ago on uh, on my podcast, uh, Are You Coming Back? Which I didn't realize that the answer was yes. And as a congregational rabbi, um, and I don't know if you knew that either, but I, I recall something that you said, which is that you worry that even for you when you're not a congregational rabbi, that people stopped missing you when you weren't in the pews, that there was something about that time when we were in congregational life pre-COVID where we worry about those people who we see every week when all of a sudden we don't see them and that you missed that and you wondered who was missing you. And uh, I think about that often and I think that what you've named about what's so challenging about COVID is that I don't fully feel I've reclaimed that yet. I don't yet have that feeling of, understanding who is just gone for the week and who's gone. And and I'm still sitting with that. And in that way, I'm definitely not feeling like I'm fully back. So I'm reminded that there's still a lot of wrestling to be done. Rabbi Farkas, if you'll take the last word on this question. Okay. I think this is a deeply personal question and I appreciate both of you answering from a deep place. Um, so, uh, as you know, I left VBS in... Um, at the end of November and uh, at the Chagim were over and really started at the Federation in January. And uh, for the previous, including rabbinical school, 20 years of my life, every Shabbat I was involved with some service somewhere, being responsible to creating something. And uh, and at Valley Beth Shalom for sure is such a broad and dynamic community, there was always something to do, often in the morning and then in the afternoon on Shabbat, and then, of course, Sunday morning Hebrew school. I mean, it was every weekend there was, you know, that's the weekends is when we work, right? That's what, um, so then uh, I left and, uh, and I remember the first Shabbat, the first Shabbat I woke up thinking, oh, I can go to the shul at the Musaf, you know, like I can show up at the end, right? But I woke up early, feeling like I needed to do something, and then, and then a few weeks into that, um, I got over that. Uh, I was able to sleep in a little bit. But I felt um, it was like sort of these questions I have with bar mitzvah students, because most b'nai mitzvah students, I think most of us realize, the majority of our b'nai mitzvah students, when you're counseling them and you're approaching their bar about mitzvah, that uh, they're. Jewish education is about to change very vividly and very rapidly. 
and that uh, everything that they've learned from whether it's preschool or kindergarten or what have you up to the moment that they have their bar bat mitzvah is uh, in many ways something given to them and instructed to them and then after their bar bat mitzvah unless they are uh, of a family for which would push them hard to be part of post B'nai Mitzvah experiences, um, the rest of it really is up to them to create. And so I had this conversation with B'nai Mitzvah students about, um, you know, every Bar Mitzvah is 12 or 13, which means they only have about five years left at home before they go off to college. And which means that when they go off to college and no one's watching them, what is their Jewish life? and that the purpose of bar mitzvah is to begin to give you the responsibility of crafting your own Jewish life. And so when I stopped and I left the pulpit and I didn't have a checklist of things I had to do, it began a very deep existential question of what is Shabbat for Noah and his family when I didn't have a list of things to do. And frankly, it was very incredibly disorienting. And I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there deciding exactly what Shabbos looks like for us because I'm used to creating. I'm used to having to write a sermon or put a text sheet together or be there in support of family or work at, work a room and knowing everything about everyone in the community and who's having a bar mitzvah, who's having an anniversary, who lost somebody, who's had a graduation and making sure that I relate to them and uh, not having to do that but now thinking about that as a community member as opposed to a community professional leader is a is a very disorienting experience. So we are we are trying on and taking out for test drives all sorts of different versions of Shabbat right now. We still have this morning I had Oreo cookie brownies with my kids for breakfast with uh, with a cup of coffee. I did have that earlier this morning. Now, the last thing I will say that is this though, and this is a federation conversation. What I didn't realize about my role that's both as an observant Jew and a rabbi and now the head of the Federation is a really, which is a really sad and unfortunate comment, but it's something is true. The vast majority of anti-Semitic attacks occur on Shabbat. They occur against our buildings and our people on Saturday morning. And that is because the people who want to attack us know that that's where we're going to be. Three weeks into taking the reins, we had the incident in Colleyville, Texas. And so uh, I have a, we have set up a system in my house because we're observant so that I will know about these things immediately. And uh, I have to say it's unfortunate, but there are times, many times on Shabbat where I am dealing with anti-Semitism uh, in a way that is completely unexpected. And uh, I do want to just acknowledge that my good partner, Jeffrey Abrams, is here, who's the head of the ADL. And we are often finding ourselves having to infringe on our own Shabbatot to discuss who's going to which synagogue, how are we supporting these rabbis, what's going on. And in a world with rising anti-Semitism, where I, at one point in my life only had to think about one synagogue, one community, I are now involved. We, have, we monitor almost 600 community institutions here in LA and uh, it is a very rare that a Sabbath goes by where I'm not getting that little text on my phone or an alert that something is happening. And so uh, that, that, that's just like a little window into what the Sabbath looks like now for me where uh, I used to just turn my phone off and now uh, I'm always thinking around looking over my shoulder um, to see if I have to activate some part of our CSI system. So. Uh, just wanted to share that with you. I that strikes me deeply, and it reminds me of something that Rabbi Masagi has said very early in this conversation, which is that sometimes we use the things that we don't think of as the Shabbistic things in our life. We use them to make Shabbat, you know, to go and to refuel yourself by visiting a parent. And uh, your version of that is oversight over the broader Jewish community and looking over and guarding over. And speaking of guarding, to just end on a note of, of guarding, uh, earlier we were talking about in the text the two different um, ways of keeping Shabbat, of Zahor and of Shamor. There's a read on Parsha Pachukotai by Sforno that says that Shmor, as opposed, as opposed to walking in, halicha, in, in uh, Halacha or Halicha, Shmor, when it comes to mitzvot, and when it comes to the chukim, 
but particularly mitzvot that are not chukim, is intended to tell us intentionally to wrestle with them, that we are not supposed to be in a static relationship, but rather to remain in a wrestling relationship. And I hope that you all get a feeling of kal v'chomer, that if the rabbis in your communities are wrestling with what Shabbat is to them and how Shabbat is unfolding for them, that it's permission for all of us to be revisiting those approaches to Shabbat all of the time. And uh, we'll end on a note of blessing of time to say that earlier this week as I was leaving a shiva, somebody said to me, thank you for taking two minutes to answer my question on the way out. As I get older, I realize that time is the one thing that nobody can get back. So thank you for your time. I bless you with that as well. I know you can't get back this night. This is your Erev Shavuot as well as individuals, as Jews. And we thank you for being the ones to share it with us. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.